However, standing by right now is the one and the only, Sean Mooney. Who? Mooney, everybody's got a price for the Million Dollar Man. After you threw him off through the announce table, Taker climbs back down, he gets in the ring, and he goes, see if he's breathing. So right before I called 911, I thought she'd fallen asleep. Kind of shook her a little bit to, to wake her up, and she did not respond. I don't go down to my, go to my grave testifying or whatever, swearing that Davey was not on drugs. If he was on drugs, the way Brett says, how does, I mean, how great does that make Davey? Are you laughing, Sean? I get off the track here all the time. Did you just laugh, Sean? You go ahead and chop me. Just give me a big chop. I'll sell. I'll give you my whole chest and everything. And then I'll look at you like this, and then I'll punch you right in the mouth as hard as I can. <laughs> Attention, Sean Mooney, you scum, you slime, you maggot. If there's no further questions, you're dismissed. Carry on, maggot. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Primetime with Sean Mooney. I just want to say thank you. Thank you, thank you for tuning in. I know that you have millions, really, literally, millions of choices for uh, different uh, things to entertain you out there with not just the thousands of wrestling podcasts, but also uh, all the other entertainment uh, opportunities there on YouTube and everything. So thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope that uh, you've been enjoying the episodes as of late. I really have, because we've just covered a wide range of topics, uh, not just focused on personalities, but also, uh, you know, we, we had uh, the producers of Dark Side of the Ring, which I, if you've been watching those episodes, man, are they fantastic. Uh, just had the one with uh, uh, Herb Abrams and the UWF, and man... Uh, wow, just a, a great episode. And that actually ties into our episode this week. We'll get to that. But, you know, we uh, had that episode. And then, of course, uh, we finally were able to air the episode of the author of Nitro, the book. And we followed that up with a great conversation with Eric Bischoff. And we certainly covered the Monday Night Wars, but so much more. I, there's a lot of things I didn't know about Eric and his early life and things that shaped him that he was uh, able and willing to, to share with us, but uh, gave, me, gave you a good idea of you know, why he is who he is and doesn't take uh, uh, crap from anybody. And uh, also why he's been successful and he's just one of those people that just keeps going. Um, then, uh, you know, uh, w- this week we're coming off an episode with Tim Storm with the NWA. And what a, what a fantastic story he is. Uh, you know, uh, Tim, just uh, a guy who started late as far as you know, getting into professional wrestling. Most guys do it, uh, you know, at their early 20s. And, and he didn't even start till he was 30. And very few people have been able to do that. We know that there's not very many. Uh, DDP, of course, comes to mind when you think about it. But not many people can start that late. I mean, it's just like with any athlete. It's like, you know, playing Major League Baseball when you turn 30 you decide oh yeah i'm gonna play professional baseball even though you have to go into the minors but you know come on but uh he's had a a very successful career and uh, was the reigning nwa world's heavyweight champion for uh, a good stint there and then had uh, a great run of of matches and uh, a great feud with nick aldis who is now the champ but uh just a fascinating story and of course He's a teacher, so uh, that's close to my heart. My mom was a teacher. I've got uh, family members 
who are all educators. So uh, the fact that he's been able to do all this and and work another career and take care of his family and uh, you know and, and still be a successful professional wrestler that's pretty amazing. But uh, really enjoyed that story uh, with him. Uh, this week is a, another interesting twist as far as uh, having people on. And I mentioned that uh, that episode of the Dark Side of the Ring had aired this past week um, with about Herb Abrams and the um, the uh, UWF and uh, just what a crazy story that is. And watching it, John Arezzi, uh, that name may uh, may or may not be familiar to you, but he's been around professional wrestling for a long time. Uh, dropped out of it for a while. Has had you know, four major different careers that he just. Uh, uh, you know, went from one to the other. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I see, he was like all over that episode. And uh, he, and I was thinking, I got to get this guy on. I had thought about doing it before because we have a connection, which you'll find out as soon as you uh, begin listening to this, that I had bothered me for years. I thought that we had crossed paths, and it turns out we did, as you will find out. But a, a really interesting story with uh with john and we'll get to that in just a second uh before we do i want to remind everybody that uh, please please uh if you can frequent our sponsors please uh, uh use their products if you can uh, they are, are are what keep us going here and i know it's annoying to listen to some of the ads uh because they come in at the times when you're like in the middle of a sentence sometimes i don't know how they do it we don't have any control over it but um, they are very important to what we do, and especially during this period of time that everybody's trying to get through. Uh, they are very, very important, and I thank them for continuing to be out there and advertise because uh, my, many might think it, was, it would be a waste of money because people are, you know, millions of people out of work right now, so there's not a whole lot of money being spent out there, but they are loyal to their company, not only the getting you know, advertising out there, but also to the the, uh, the groups that they, they advertise with. So please, if you can do it, uh, appreciate them as much as we do. If you can, you're helping us and you're helping all the podcasts out there. So that's uh, that's what I'll say on that. Um, if, you, if you really don't like hearing the ads, uh, there's a way to uh, avoid doing that, which also helps out the podcast, and that's by joining us on Patreon. You can do that by going to patreon.com slash primetimemooney, patreon.com slash primetimemooney, and you will uh, be able to uh, get all of our content early and ad-free. You know, Mondays we do the Network uh, Classics, Wednesdays we have original episodes, and then, of course, on Saturdays we drop something from the vault. We dust it off and reintroduce it to you in, in case you'd missed it. And you can get all those uh, episodes early and ad-free before anybody else does. Uh, they drop uh, 6 a.m. Eastern on those days. But uh, if you're with Patreon, you get it uh, way before that. And if uh, you've noticed, uh, our Patreon members will tell you uh, that we have been doing a lot more with video. If I can uh, record an interview on Skype where we can do video with the uh, person who's on, then we add that element and you get to see it. Most uh, other people don't. We put it up on YouTube at a couple weeks down the road, but you get to see it first and early. So uh, that's something else to think about. But I really enjoyed that because, you know, we actually get to see this interaction. I, I get to see them, they get to see me, and I, I think it adds a, a different element to the, uh, you know, how people talk to you when they actually see you. So uh, been enjoying that. So... Um, 
we're going to keep that coming your way. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear your reaction to what's happening in the world of professional wrestling. I mentioned this with the Network Classics, if you caught that. But I'm very interested to hear what people have to say about uh, companies like AEW and WWE doing these shows with no audience. And uh, to me, it's just very strange. It's just bizarre to watch. Uh, it, it, initially, it was kind of interesting. But now, you know, you can watch it and you're like, ah, okay. There's just something missing to this. You know what it is. It's that atmosphere. But I give them credit for uh, moving forward because it, it allows their people to keep working. And that's not just the guys in the ring. You've got uh, television crews. and I mean, it just effect, affects so many people. But uh, I wonder if, if you think it's doing more harm than good, or is it, is it good for the business that they continue to do this? Other ones like NWA have uh, basically shut down. They're going to ride it out and then uh, debut once again once it's over. But it may be a while. It may be a while. I, I just, uh, I'm concerned of how soon, even when they give the all clear, will people go to events? Not just wrestling, but any kind of event, you know, sporting events, uh, uh, concerts, uh, because, you know, being that close to people, you know, the people are going to go there and they're going to be outbreaks. Maybe they're gonna, people are going to wait and see what happens, but love to get your take on that. Uh, you can email me at primetimemooney at gmail.com, primetimemooney at gmail.com. Also, uh, follow us on uh, Instagram and Twitter at primetimemooney. Pretty easy. All right, let's get back to this episode with uh, John Arezzi, who was one of the originals, uh, one of the first to have a radio program that focused on wrestling and uh, the behind the scenes of what was going on in the business, and also one of the first to organize wrestling conventions where you could actually go and meet your your heroes, your idols, face to face and have them sign things for you and actually have a conversation. So I uh, really enjoyed this conversation and I believe you will too. So let's get to it. John Arezzi, ding, ding, ding. Hey folks, my guest this episode is a true trailblazer, although I don't believe he set out to be one. I imagine he just wanted to celebrate and be part of a business that he loved, professional wrestling. In the process, though, he became one of the originals, people who brought another side of wrestling to the fans through the radio show Pro Wrestling Spotlight, which is now a podcast. He is also one of the first to promote wrestling conventions, starting with the first weekend of champions. John Arezzi, uh, thanks for being here. Welcome to Primetime. How are you? Hey, Sean. It's a pleasure of mine to be here uh, well, with you and reminiscing and, and reacquainting ourselves after many years. Well, and folks, uh, when he says that, he, he really means we do go back, even though uh, I, don't, I just put it all together, because for years I had wondered about this, and if you know anything about my career, I really began in uh, the, uh, the world of broadcasting working at Major League Baseball Productions in New York. I was this kid from Arizona, got an opportunity to go and work back there after working on a show out in uh, Tucson, where I went to school and lived. And uh, John also worked there briefly, but all these years, I mean, we're talking decades, and it always kind of wore on me. Whenever I would hear his name, I'd say, I, I, I think I worked with that guy because we were there at the exact same time, right? This is, please confirm it for me right now. No, I'm confirming it. It was, uh, it was in the spring of 1982. Uh-huh. I had just returned from New York, uh, from North Carolina, where I worked in baseball. Uh, I was there. Uh, 
as a um, public relations director, sales, marketing, and everything else that you do in minor league baseball for the Class A affiliate of the New York Mets and the South Atlantic League, the Shelby Mets. Mm -hmm. And um, I came up to New York back home uh, to try to get a job in the game. I had interviewed uh, for uh, the Mets' Diamond Vision job, which they were just launching, and I came in second place for that. Uh, but I believe Tim Gunkel, Tim, Tim Gunkel, Gunkel, whatever. Do you remember him? He was like one of the big shots over there at MLB. They liked oh, me okay. for whatever reason, and they offered me a position uh, at Major League Baseball Productions, twelve twelve Avenue with Americas, yeah. I believe it was, as a viewer initially. Yep. And I didn't spend a long time there uh, because I was. Um, I was always trying to win the race before the gate opened up, you know, and I got impatient watching ball games and I wanted yeah. to do more and didn't know how long that entry level position was going to last. And I, I, uh, left uh, and I look back at that. I regret it because baseball in my heart and in yeah. my soul is still the number one passion of my life. Really? So, you know, a lot of people uh, probably didn't even know about that baseball background that you had that you actually worked in, in minor league baseball. But uh, folks at the time, uh, Major League Baseball Productions was actually a division of MLB. We were owned by MLB. It was uh, run by two other guys, Larry Parker, and yes, Larry. Uh, Larry right, Parker. and uh, yeah. Tim Parker was his son, who was Tim, also Tim. That's the guy. Company. Tim Parker is yeah, the guy that, that hired me. Um, but there were, uh, you know, some really, really phenomenal people. It was, it, you know, John. It was a, it was a really incredible time to be at that company because. It wasn't uh, – most of production in New York, of course, was unionized. It was not a union shop. So we had a collection of kids. I mean, I was right out of college. And, uh, you know, Mike Tolan, I don't know if you know that name, but he's a pretty big name in, in uh, the business out in Hollywood and went on to become, uh, you know, a phenomenal writer and producer and director. And uh, the list just goes on and on. Uh, Joe Levine, uh, yes. who became, uh, you know, is a phenomenal – uh, documentary producer, produce all those HBO sports, Steve Stern. It, the, the list goes on and I could really, I could go on. And it was just this very special collection of people. And it was, it launched me. I, I, I was there for six years and I went from there to work for the WWF because I worked on a show through that company called Light Moments in Sports. And people listen uh, to this know the story well. But it was, it was just an, an incredible opportunity and you were able to learn so much. Like you said, if you would have stuck around because you, you could do all this. If you work for the network, you couldn't edit. Uh, you couldn't uh, cut music. You couldn't produce. I was 22 years old producing a highlight film for the Minnesota Twins. Mm. So, you know, the, the opportunity that we had to grow. And, but as you mentioned, it, it, you had to be a patient individual because when you mentioned being a viewer, which meant you would sit in a chair, uh, watching two monitors at once. You probably, you remember this and you had a, you had two clipboards. Yep. And you're watching and you're watching, uh, uh, games because we had this week in baseball and the way they would be able to find shots is by you logging, literally writing down in the, on these sheets, uh, AB at bat, uh, right. you know, medium close-up of Reggie Jackson or whoever it was, and they could go in and they would find these sheets. They didn't have it all logged. It wasn't on computers, mm -hmm. and you would have to sit there for hours and hours. But the opportunities came, and uh, I seized them and became uh, a producer, and then I would jump in front of a camera anytime we had the opportunity, 
and cable was in its infancy, so I was able to actually be on shows as a talent because they didn't have anybody else. Yeah. But uh, yeah. it really, it just blows me away to think now after all these years that I actually connect with you and find and confirm that you were there, however briefly. Yeah. But it didn't. It didn't uh, go so bad for you. I mean, you 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 you've got a lot of other opportunities along the way, but uh, that really is uh, phenomenal. And you and you mentioned you got a book coming up. I imagine that's going to be part of it. Yeah, I mean, uh, it really is. My book is really a story about uh, a guy with a few different identities. Because mm-hmm. uh, uh, when I left the wrestling business in 1996, I changed my name to John Alexander. I had had enough of pro wrestling and put it in the rear view. And I got into the country music business. I'm going to rewind again to the reason I'm, I, I left baseball. Because when I was in North Carolina for the Shelby Mets uh, with my roommates uh, who were – uh, pretty prominent names now. J.P. Ricciardi, who was a general manager of the Toronto Blue Jays, worked for the Mets. It has been one of the original Moneyball guys. And John Gibbons, who was the other roommate who was a uh, catcher and uh, later became a uh, player for the Mets. Uh, a brief uh, cup of coffee in the majors with them, but was a manager and most recently managed the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh-huh. Uh, but during that tenure, I went out one night to a nightclub to – just cut loose a little bit, have a couple of beers, and there was a rock and roll band that took the stage, a cover band uh, in this really dive bar. And uh, the girl, woman, uh, she was 22 at the time, as I was, uh, her name was Patty Loveless. I don't know if you know anything about country music, but her name was Patty Lovelace at the time, and she fronted a band called Straight Up. And I was like, what is this girl doing in this club? She's so good. And uh, I eventually quit my job at the Mets to manage her. And then I went back up to New York and got the job at MLB because we had, you know, the band was a cover band and it broke up and the band broke up and I went to New York. And then I moved back to North Carolina to manager again after I quit MLB. Uh, and uh, so I kind of was in the uh, developmental stages with Patty and that kind of got me in the music business. But uh, that took me out of baseball and um, and to this day, it's probably one of the only regrets I have in my career is like, even the working title for a while for the book was called I Should Have Stayed in Baseball. <laughs> uh, but uh, I still have a, a, a deep passion for baseball and the New York Mets, and and uh, I love the game. And uh, But I, I did other things. as you know, I've had a crazy life, and the book really centers around me moving into Nashville, changing my name to John Alexander, and then working at a record company there. And I was the head of music marketing for Scripps Network's Great American Country Television. Uh, and spent uh, 10 years with them and then went over to be the vice president for Black River Entertainment, which was a startup label in Nashville. And I discovered a kid named Kelsey Ballerini uh, at a pizza place in Franklin, Tennessee. And she's one of the top artists in the business today. So uh, I've done a lot of different things. So they said, here's a guy with two different identities, John Arezzi, who was a wrestling guy, and John Alexander, who is this music marketing mogul and personal manager in Nashville, and no one uh, knew that I was a resi if you were in Nashville or John Alexander from the wrestling side. So they said, you have a crazy story. And uh, so ECW Press gave me a book deal, which uh, is done now. Uh, Greg Oliver and I worked on it. Greg is a historian and an author of 15 books and incredible partner to work with and we handed the manuscript in to ecw press and we're finalizing the title of the book now uh but they want it marketed more to the wrestling audience so it's going to be have a wrestling title in it 
What are some of the working titles? Can you? Uh, uh, well, a- I mean, uh, you know, we're, we're, st- we're the, the the way I pitched it at the time last year before we got the deal was Matt Memories, and mm-hmm. that's kind of my brand I built because I got a website yeah. now, Matt Memories. I have a Facebook page, John Arezzi's Matt Memories, because it really is uh, about the archives I've gathered up over the since the early seventies, <laughs> and. Uh, so Matt Memories is going to be kind of a brand that's going to develop that is going to give the fans access to historic uh, videos and photographs and audio and film that I shot uh, during my time in the wrestling business as a ringside photographer, but then again as a fan just shooting 8mm films. And, of course, I've archived all the pro wrestling spotlight radio shows that I did, uh, you know, all those years ago. Yeah. So with everything that, that you've done, uh, sounds I mean, you've had – a few careers here um, between baseball, music, and wrestling. Was wrestling always kind of the foundation? Uh, you know, growing up, were you just a super fan? How did that all develop? Well, Greg Oliver termed it correctly when he said that wrestling is an itch I can't scratch away because mm. I keep coming back to it. Yeah, right. uh, I was a wrestling fan uh, since the age of seven. I mean, I was a kid. I was seven years old, and my sister called me into the living room to watch. She said, what's this on TV? And it was wrestling. It was midget wrestling. And, and then Bruno San Martino. Uh, and I was like, holy smokes. I fell in love with it immediately at a very young age. And I became a fan. And I became a fan uh, which really lasted uh, up until uh, 1972 where I was still a fan. But I started a fan club in 1972 for Freddie Blassie, mm-hmm. uh, for classy Freddie Blassie. And um he was just somebody that I admired and, and read about him in the magazines. And then he was a heel on the East Coast and a baby face on the West Coast. And so I started that fan club up and got a chance to correspond and meet Freddie uh, beginning in 1973. And, and that uh, was how I started. And then I just kind of uh, started taking pictures at ringside by ringside seats and taking photographs. And I sold a couple of stories into some of the magazines at the time. And then I... Um, I got a press pass uh, from Madison Square Garden to be a ringside photographer, and I became a contributing editor for Ring Wrestling Magazine. And I and I and I shot pictures and wrote stories for just about everybody uh, from the time period of '74 uh, right through kind of '79 when I graduated from college and decided to leave wrestling. But that also included a stint as a uh, uh, you know as a a television taping for the Worldwide Wrestling Federation in Philadelphia, January 10th, 1978. I was 20 years old. I bullshitted my way into, I don't know if I could say, I BS myself. I told Ernie yeah. Roth, the Grand Wizard, that I wanted to go into the ring and give it a shot. And he was like, what do you want to do that for? I said, I just want to see how it is. And he set me up and I got uh, uh, I got to work two matches uh, on TV, and and one of one of which was against the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes, with, with me. No training, I, I mean, really. No training. Oh my I, God. I mean, they asked me, you know, where'd you work? Oh, I worked down south, <laughs> and because you know I was connected and, and knew, yeah, yeah, they, they put Savannah Savannah Sousa in with me uh, in a handicap match because Sub- Sousa recognized me because that's the photographer guy, you know, yeah. and and uh, I didn't know what I was doing, Dusty was stiff with me i i accidentally did a wrong move right in the beginning of the match and he just laid into me and he whispered in my ear that he had to teach me a lesson uh so uh the end result was um me being lifted up by him after four minutes and 
thrown down on Savannah Susser and Dusty literally sat on my head to pin me, which was a little humiliation. And then later on that night, I teamed up with Joe Turco uh, to face uh, Peter Maivia and Chief J. Strongbow, uh, which was another match. And then there was a third match I was supposed to work against Bobby Backlund. Uh, but after two matches, they said, you've, you know, that's enough. <laughs> And then ironically, you have the memory, you have your Matt yeah, memory. To I have walk it on videotape and I have it, but ironically, uh, the craziest thing that happened was three weeks later, I went to the garden to take my regular ringside position, uh, at ringside to shoot Billy Graham, uh, going after Bob Backlund, uh, Bob Backlund going after Billy Graham for the title. The night Backlund won the title. And before the matches started, uh, they came and got me and, and took me out of ringside and took me in the back and I says, you were just on TV. As a wrestler, you can't be shooting ringside anymore. Uh-huh. So I, I jobbed myself out of a, a ringside photography job. But at that time, I was segueing out of wrestling anyway because I didn't yeah. think it was going to be a career for me. And, and that was my first stint. And then uh, got involved with music and baseball and had an artist management company in New York City uh, in the 80s. And when that went under in 1989, I, I needed something to fall back on. And that's how Pro Wrestling Spotlight Radio started. And uh, as I said in the uh, intro here when we started, that I don't imagine you started out thinking, you know, this is going to be something that's going to start showing fans a different side to the business, uh, as we saw at that point. You know, of course, Dave Meltzer was around, but uh, did you have any idea, or like you said, was it just, I just loved wrestling, I thought this would be something I knew about and uh, I could talk about? Well, I did a college radio show called Pro Wrestling Spotlight, and uh, that was really popular, and I and I had access. I got interviews with guys. It was all kayfabe stuff back then. Uh-huh. Uh, and then in 89, when I started Pro Wrestling Spotlight, the idea was to have a kayfabe show. It wasn't supposed to be an insider show. Uh, but, uh, you know, in week one, the, the, the WWF cooperated with the show for the debut and gave me Jimmy Hart. Uh, but the following week, I had Bruno San Martino on, and at that time – uh, there was uh, heat between really, Bruno yeah. and the organization. And uh, once I had that Bruno interview, uh, the WWF never cooperated with me yeah. again. Uh, and then the show ironically took a twist uh, when Ricky Steamboat left the NWA under a contract dispute. And he came on my show to talk about it out of character and talking about the inside of the business. And then the following week, Jim Hurd came on and uh, to address what Ricky had said. And before you know it, the show's starting to take this this insider twist yeah, and yeah. carrying the curtain down a little bit by a little bit more each and every week until by uh, you know really by the end of 1990, early 91, it was pure insider talk. Uh, did you uh, were you uncomfortable with it at first because? You know, when yeah. it is a kayfabe, you figure, okay, everybody's going to be glad to come on. I'm going to get cooperation from promoters. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly you're the enemy, which is uh, something, you know, Meltzer has dealt with for his right. entire career. Yeah, it, was, it, was a, it was a tightrope to walk because yeah. I, I would have guys on in character, uh, but I would talk about the inside. But it was it was a tightrope. After the Steamboat stuff, I was getting access to the, uh, the back at, at NWA shows, not WWF. And there was a uh, show in Philadelphia that Ric Flair – uh, when he was booking, he threw me out of the back after this because he, he heard about the steamboat thing that gotten big news and he felt that the business was not being as protected as it could. Uh. Ironically, Rick uh, was a guest, uh, his first autograph appearance at uh, my convention in 91 
and when he was in the ring that we had set up there, he came in and he told the story about when he threw me out of the back. He didn't know what to expect at this fan convention, but he enjoyed it, and it was a great opportunity for the fans to interact with wrestlers on more of an intimate level than ever before. Uh, but it was a tightrope, and uh, you know, especially when the scandal started, uh, you know, in the in the in the nineties. Uh, there was no turning back, and it got ugly. And it was just, it was just a lot of the stories, as you know, from the '90s were just not good stories. Yeah, yeah. A I, lot mean, of I was, uh, I was just looking at that Donahue show. Yeah, oh, uh, I'm so embarrassed by that. And and uh, you know, first of all, I could never understand why Vince ever went on that show to this day. And I, I have to imagine if he, when he looks back, is like that. Just, I, I'm sure since. After that show, he said, I will never do this again because he was obviously tremendously outnumbered. And that guy, um, what the heck was his name? The, the Murray Murray, who had come in to, uh, he was supposed to provide some relief to me in the event center and they didn't really know what to do with them. And it was not going well as far as that was going on. And I think that. You know, he wasn't going to be around much longer. Then whenever, and, you know, I've been asked about it. Honest to God, I have no idea what any of that was going on or whatever. I have no idea to this day. Mm -hmm. But the fact that he went on there and he basically sparred pretty well with Vince and, and, you know, I mean, it was, you you could tell the guy, I don't know, had, uh, a skill beyond, (laughs) I mean, if he was, if he was that good when he was doing, Stuff for us, he probably would have stuck around a while. But, uh, you know, it's just really an ugly episode in the history of professional wrestling. It was. Yeah. And, uh, but after that, did your notoriety, you know, from that, did it help you? What, what happened after that show? Well, I mean, the pro wrestling spotlight, um, got a lot of, not- we had a lot of listeners. Yeah. When we were at WEVD, 1050 AM, we had seven states. On a Saturday night, listening to us, and was that that was out of Queens, out of New York? That was out of New York City. Yeah, okay. yeah. So I, I debuted there in January of '92. Yeah. After I had uh, formed a partnership with Vince Russo, because uh, I don't, you probably know, I don't know if you know or not, but I brought Vince into the business, uh, which is uh, Jim Cornette calls me Patient Zero. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I mean, Russo, basically, uh, when I had the show in Long Island, uh, one of my listeners said that there was a video store owner out on Long Island that yeah. had some wrestlers there, and uh, maybe he'd be a good advertiser for Pro Wrestling Spotlight. So I met with Vince, and he started advertising with me, and he had ideas to get into the business. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to start a newsletter, and I wasn't that keen on it, but I was like, well, you know, he, he was very aggressive. He was very ambitious, mm-hmm. and he kind of used me to get into the wrestling business. And once he, we formed a partnership uh, at the end of 91, uh, he took the show, and he said, you need to be on a big station. So he took me off of the Long Island station and took me to 1050 a.m., where it was over a 1000 bucks a week to buy an hour of airtime. We were brokering. Yeah. Yeah. And then within three months, our partnership ended. Because he didn't like the direction of what I was doing, covering the scandals and, you know, talking about the inside. And he he started reaching out to the WWF and Steve Planamenta. And uh, and basically, uh, there was kind of a divide and conquer. And I lasted three, four months with Vince. And then it was all over. But mm-hmm. it, it eventually led to him uh, coming in 
working at the magazine, then getting on a creative staff and yeah. helping with the Attitude Era, and then you know his whole history. Uh, and I hadn't um, really talked to Vince in over 20 years because uh, legitimately at the time, he was probably the only person I ever met in the wrestling business that I actually had a, I despised. Uh, and he wrote a book, uh, mentioned me in it, which was not was a little disparaging. And then uh, a couple of years ago, around Thanksgiving in 2018, my nephew, who's a big wrestling fan as well, heard a podcast he did and said, Russo's talking about you, Uncle. And, and I, I decided at that time, I was like, you know what? After all these years, I'm going to go try to confront the guy because he had challenged anyone who had a beef with him to join him on his Truth With Consequences podcast. So I reached out and I says, I, I want to participate. And we had a fate, we had a YouTube live conf- conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it lasted about two hours. And I said, as long as we're both gentlemen, let's talk it out. Let's do it. Yeah. And I did it. And I'm fine with it. I forgave him for whatever happened. We weren't on the same page years ago, but now it's kind of like this, uh, detente in a way where, Time has passed, and I know Vince. I know Vince right now is probably in a place that he's not too happy with. Uh, He he doesn't really enjoy the wrestling business, as he says all the time. But you know what? I mean, I don't have any enemies. I don't want any enemies. And and time, too many years have passed, and now I know there's still a lot of bickering out there. There's always this one hates this one, and and I'm like, it's it's the wrestling business. It's always been that way. There's always been these little petty, uh, you know, feuds and. And, you know, I, I just want to get along with everybody now that I'm back as a historian and an analyst. I'm like, I have no heat with anyone, and that's the way I'm going to keep it. If anyone has any heat with me, I just dismiss it and move on. Yeah. Yeah, and and time is, a, a, I won't say a great healer, but, you know, you just look at things from a different perspective. And I'm sure back then Vince was very determined to get into the business and yeah. do it any way he could, uh, yeah. you know. He, he, he uh he wanted to be in the business, and he got in the business, and and uh, and he was uh, he he went up the ladder pretty quickly, and he had a major part of a lot of the stuff that was going on back then, and you know, in, in a boom area for pro wrestling that we've never seen before and may never see again. Yeah, and uh, his contributions uh, were significant. He had a lot of outrageous things too that did not work. But uh, his partnership and his his uh, his being able to have Vince McMahon's ear was a lot, yeah, yeah. and Vince listened to him. So, did you ever have any opportunity to work with WWF, WWE? Did you? Uh, no, I mean that was kind of one thing I wish I would have had the opportunity to work with them or WCW. That phone call never came. Yeah. Maybe because I was doing something on the inside of the business, but most recently. Uh, actually started a couple of years ago when I was thinking of coming back in and I have an enormous amount of archives, thousands mm-hmm. of photographs, uh, thousands of uh, pictures I shot at the garden and, and eight millimeter films I shot as a fan at Madison Square Garden in the early 70s, like Andre the Giant's first match ever at Madison Square Garden and oh. Bruno San Martino and Pedro Morales and Blassie and Don Leo Jonathan and Killer Kowalski and I met with WWE archives uh-huh. about doing something with them uh, and pitching this Matt Memories show. And uh, Ben Brown and I had several meetings, uh, and but nothing ever came of it. So, sure. And I decided that I wasn't going to wait forever, and I decided to then start a podcast and now do this other 
uh, the Matt Memories uh, portal, which is going to launch in July, uh, that's going to give fans the access to all of this stuff that I've been sitting on, this treasure chest of, of content, so to speak. Yeah. So uh, you go on in, into the 80s and about, I don't know, you say mid, mid-90s, uh, you're, you're done. Um, and, and this is a point in wrestling where there's a lot going on. We're talking, you know, Monday Night Wars and yeah, my, it's my, changing my, forever. And where were you? And you yeah, said, you know what? Eh, I, I left the business right before it, sh- it took off. I mean, my timing was not the best in the world because I, at that t- at time in '93, I was promoting as well. Yeah. I had formed a relationship. Uh, I was the guy that put together the deal that brought AAA into the United States. Uh, Ron Scola was an entertainment attorney. He was a listener of my show, and he says, "I, I really want to promote Lucha, uh, and I think there would be a market for it." So I reached out to Meltzer, and Dave put me in touch with Conan. And then we had a conversation with Antonio Pena, and before you know it, a partnership was formed, and we're promoting the Los Angeles Sports Arena, and uh, did the third largest gate in 1993. So I got involved with that, and I was involved in that partnership, and I was I, I always kind of had financial problems back then because I was brokering time. I was yeah. you couldn't make a lot of money in wrestling at the time, so I sold my shares in the company right before they did their pay per view with WCW. Uh, when worlds collide and uh, made some money from that. And then I started promoting internationally. I had a federation called International Wrestling All-Stars, and we used to sell overseas tours. And that time, I was now dealing with the boys as a promoter. Yeah. And I wasn't having fun. I mean, my first yeah. tour, I had signed Jim Helwig, Ultimate Warrior, and he held me up, and he held me up after I made a deal with him and held me up and held me up until I had to tell him to go F himself, and I hung up on him. Uh, and uh, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't adhere to what he wanted me to do. And then uh, I worked with guys like Jake the Snake, and Jake was a handful. Yeah. And I got Jake into the AAA, and and but Jake was dealing with the boys on a on a promoter basis. They look at you as a money mark if you have any money whatsoever, and uh, it wasn't a, it wasn't a good situation. So by the end of '96, uh, I, I had had enough. And I promoted a show in Arizona with Mil Moscaris in the main event, and he tried to give me a, you know, cash in a, a first class plane ticket, and I, I was just like, I lost money on that show, and I was like, I'm done. I don't want to do this no more. So I just, and I didn't like who I'd become, Sean. I was a person who, uh, when you're deeply involved in the wrestling business, as I was at that time, you tend to become one of the workers, you know. And I wasn't happy with who I was. I mean. Uh, and so I, I basically walked away and, uh, and I got, I took a job as an account executive for a Long Island country radio station because that was another thing I could fall back on because I love country music. And I, uh, when I got that job, I dropped on my knees and, and I, uh, I swore to God that from this day forward, I would always do the right thing by anyone I ever did business with. Uh, I would always over, uh, under promise, over deliver. And ever since that day, my life just took a dramatic turn for the better. And uh, uh, so, I mean, that's kind of led to where I am today after all these years in country music and now back kind of in pro wrestling. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, you know, you're, you're a trailblazer in the sense with the radio show and we've seen what has happened since then. I mean, they've all morphed into what we call podcasts today, yes, which are just phenomenal. I mean, we've got thousands of them, mm-hmm. <laughs> it seems. But also these conventions, which are incredibly popular, uh, with the Weekend of Champions. How did that all come together? And it's 
I'm sure they had other events that took place, but nothing like that. And how did that all come together, and uh, and how has it evolved since? Okay. Uh, well, you know, going back to baseball, I mean, I always loved going to baseball card shows. Right. I always yeah. loved going to, wow, I can meet Eddie Cranepool from the Mets or Tom Seaver. And and I was like, why isn't there anything like this for pro wrestling? And when I had the radio show, I decided like, well, let me do instead of a baseball card show, let me do like a wrestling memorabilia show and bring guys in uh, for the fans to get an opportunity to meet. Yeah. And so that was the idea in 1990, and I started it. Uh, and the first guest, uh, the first the headliner for that first convention was Sting, and he had just won the world title from Ric Flair, so he was hot. And I had uh, a Terry Funk, and I had Bruno Sammartino, and Cactus Jack, and um, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, and uh, and then the dealer tables, uh, they were sold out almost instantly, and I knew I was on to something. Yeah. So I did it annually. But I left also, uh, when I left the wrestling business, that's just when... Uh, the WWF was get starting their fan access, mm -hmm. so they got into the business, and you know you can't compete with them. Uh, but I, you know, it was timing again. I left, and then it exploded, and now when I look at the wrestling conventions that are everywhere, yeah. I'm like, what a business this yeah. has turned into. They're they're everywhere. WrestleCon is amazing. I went to WrestleCon last year, and I was like, you got to be kidding me. Yeah. Look at this. So I had aspirations. I had an aspiration, I had an idea that lasted for about a month or two that I was going to do one in Nashville and I was going to bring it back. And I was like, you know what? I don't need the stress anymore. Yeah, I was going to ask you. I'm not going to do time. that. Yeah, I'm not going to do it. I'd rather go get a table and, and find a book <laughs> right. Right, now do it rather yourself. than promote it. But you, you, you talked about, you know, when you're trying to put together shows, uh, you know, for wrestling, but what was the reaction when you when you approach these guys and say hey, I want to do this convention? Uh, I don't know, you know, depend uh, way it is today. You know what kind of their star level is. It's like a card basically to see mm -hmm. how much they're going to get, and then you guarantee them so much. If you know, folks, if you don't know how this works, you know, say somebody coming in, uh, you know, say it's Ric Flair, which was uh, was one of the guys you had uh, that came in, and I don't know if you promise him ten grand or something like that. And that's his flat fee, no matter what. And then he promises to stay so many hours. He's going to sign right. so many things. I don't know if he also agreed to sign pictures that you could sell beyond that. But how did how did that all work? What was the? It was a little bit of all of that. I, yeah. I, I didn't do deals with guys where we would share revenue. I paid them all guarantees. Uh, mm -hmm. For example, Flair uh, at the time, uh, which was a ton of money, but at the time, like fast forward to today, it's not. I paid him five thousand uh, dollars for right. two days. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and Billy Graham and Lou, I had you know at, the, at that convention in '91 it was my favorite because I had Ric Flair, I had Buddy Rogers, yeah. Luthez, Bruno Sammartino, Superstar Billy Graham, Woman, uh, uh, Fabulous Moolah, Rick Rude, and it just turned into and like all of a sudden all guys were calling me up. We want to be part of it. We want to be part of it. So I brought so many in that I, I couldn't. Make a lot of money from it, right? But how did how did you do that? Because you know when they walk in the door, they want they want their money. I mean that's it still works that well, way today. They got their money, and, and, got and, their and so wrong. where did you did you get an upfront? You know, did people pay you in advance? How did you uh, I sold mortgage the house? Tickets. What did you do? I, I sold advance tickets through the radio show. I had mm -hmm. these super ticket packages, dealer fees, money were coming in. So there was a cash flow that okay. was coming in, and then. You know, the lines were out the door, I mean, but I underpriced it. You know, I had a 
$5 admission, and, you know, for a $10 extra, you'd get everybody's autograph. Wow. Yeah, That's right? That's a hell of a deal. And, you know, and, and folks, there is a, there is a YouTube, uh, video of this. Oh, yeah. Which is really cool. I, I was, I, you know, buzzed through it to be able to see all these guys sitting at these tables. And I'll tell you, John, what really struck me. There's a, a point in this tape where you, you got Ric Flair in the ring and he makes a little speech to the crowd and he says, you know, I don't think I realized it before the connection with fans and how much you guys really appreciate it because you know there really wasn't other events for it them wasn't. to do that besides the kid hanging out in the back of the arena mm-hmm. uh, and people trying to say hello to you in the hotel lobby. Yeah, or waiting outside but the that arena. That really struck me. That really struck me that 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 he said that, and it would seem really heartfelt. That I'm sure. That was the way a lot of these guys felt. Yeah, it wasn't easy to get guys to do it because they didn't know what it was until the word spread and it was good. And, you know, the the biggest uh, accomplishment that I had uh, on on a booking was uh, in my last convention when I brought the original Sheik in Mm -hmm. at Farhat. I mean, he'd never done one of these before. And he showed up in character with his machete. and was in character the whole time, but he didn't know what it was. And right. Kevin Sullivan helped me get that booking, but uh, I didn't even speak to him. He stayed in character, and I didn't want to. I didn't want to uh, get that illusion dissolved because when I was a little kid, I was scared of him, right. and just to bring him to a convention, and I, I didn't want to even like talk to him like a regular human being. I wanted him to stay in character. But yeah, the guy's kind of like the word spread. Like this is a cool thing to do. He treated us good. We got our money. The fans were good. It wasn't like uh, it was just a great experience. I mean, and the fans who reach out to me today on uh, the, the the Facebook live show that I do every Sunday and Saturday rather, and the emails I get and the Twitter following and the people who remember the conventions and were there for those conventions, they're out there and they still remember it. They're older. Uh, but uh, it was a it was a really special time in the business back then because nothing like that had ever happened before. Yeah, and and we're talking. I mean, how many years ago is that? Like thirty years 30, ago. Thirty. Yeah, years. and and, um, and and I've been to a few of these now over the past few years that I, I some you know came back into the business. <laughs> but uh, one thing that uh, I always enjoy is I know a lot of these guys that come back, and it, and in, and for them, some of it's been years and years, and I realize why they do it. Of course, it's nice to get the cash, but they still miss that connection. They still love the adulation mm-hmm. of these people coming in, and it, and you know they'll do God, some of these guys probably do twenty a year, uh, maybe more. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it's as much for them as it is for the fans, I think. I believe it is. Yeah, yeah. because uh, once you fade away from pro wrestling, I mean, it never leaves your blood. And these performers, of course, uh, not a lot of them uh, save money. There was no health no. insurance. There was yeah, no pension no. plan. And so this is uh, their livelihood for the most part. But it also gives them the opportunity to uh, be in the spotlight, whether it's, just for that convention, and then the next time they do it, they're back in the spotlight. So I think it's a uh, it's something uh, that the boys need. Yeah, and and, uh, and it it keeps going. And, and uh, we've really seen a resurgence. And of course, right now uh, we're experiencing a very very difficult time in the world of professional wrestling. If you're an independent contractor, and uh, you know, folks, there's many many people out there with the same situation where you've got people that aren't necessarily employed by a company and they depend on 
work for, you know, to be contracted. They don't have a, a guaranteed job. So imagine all of these professional wrestlers who don't have the luxury of a contract with, say, WWE or AEW, who uh, for now we're going, what, a couple, three months now, they have not had an income because there's no shows. And even when this all ends, how long is it going to take before it comes back? Right. Uh, your perspective on what is going on right now and, and uh, you know, your appreciation for, you know, what these guys do and they don't have an income at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it's a sad, uh, it's a sad situation because we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what, we don't know if WrestleCon is going to happen next year. We don't know if other shows are going to be allowed to run. I mean, so it's the scariest time, not just for, uh, wrestling, but for all sports. Yeah. Uh, but I think on the wrestling side, it's even worse because the boys are independent contractors. The, uh, the, the, the ladies and the gentlemen who are working today, uh, there's no guarantees. There's no, and, and a lot of them don't know anything else. Right. So it's a scary, scary time, and there's no union. There's no even as a 1099 independent contractor. I mean, these are the people who are having the most difficult time getting any type of government assistance because the system isn't set up for 1099 independent contractors. Right. Uh, you know, the unemployment uh, situation, the PPP loans, the payment protection programs. And a lot of them are not savvy enough to kind of know how to navigate the system. Uh, so there's a lot of people in distress right now. And I, I believe a lot of people in the wrestling business are in serious distress right now. Yeah. And, it, and it's not just the, the folks that go in the ring. You know, you're talking to these promoters too. They depend yes. on getting these shows, you know, out there. And as I said, we don't know what's going to happen even when they say, okay, you can no. go because Will people, you know, immediately? Yeah, you know, of course, many will, but there's going to be others that say, "Hey, you know what? I'm going to wait and see right. how this people being around each other again is like." You know, and I'm going to I'm going to give you an, I'm going to give you a, uh, an opinion, uh, and I I don't think it was the wisest move in the world for shows to continue in empty arenas. I think the the ratings indicate that the ratings are plummeting. They're not maintaining any level of anything i mean it's it's not exciting to watch it's just it's weird yeah it's weird i mean so with the enormous amount of archives that the wwe has i mean that that enormous library i mean there could have been like best of 1978 or the history kind of like they could have done a lot more than just throw all of these people into a live arena situation where people are like i can't watch it uh, and AEW is the same. They, you know, they do it a little bit better, but I'm, but it's the same. You can't watch it. You can't, you can't uh, immerse yourself in it because it's just too bizarre to watch. Uh, you know, other sports may be different. You know, baseball could be different. Football uh, could be different. But um, I, I, don't I, know. I, I think all of them. Be they way. have. To, I think all of them. You have to have that. That the interaction, whatever you know, you have to hear that noise reaction, reacting to what things, what happened there. Uh, but you think that over, you think it will, it will damage the business in the long run, the fact that they are doing these shows without an audience. I, I would tend to sadly say yes. Yeah. So uh, at, before we mentioned that and got into that, um, but there really has been a resurgence, and and why do you think that we have seen? I don't know, uh, uh, a longing for those days in the 80s and 90s 
Whereas, and I, I repeatedly say this, I'm not knocking the current product. I don't like getting into that with people. But it was an era that was, I don't think will ever be captured again. Why do you I, think, though, that so many people look back where they will? They show up by the, you know, the thousands to these shows to see these guys that were a part of it. Well, for the older demographic, uh, but you it see is, young kids there too, and I don't know if it's because dad has shown them, or the network has helped do that. I don't know. But. Yeah, I, th- I think that uh, it's capturing a part of your youth and your heroes when you were growing up or in your twenties or whatever. And mm-hmm. and I think for the kids today, I mean, it's part of this nostalgia that their parents or older uh, generation is educating them on. Uh, I think there is. Um, there's always been a mystique about professional wrestling and its performers. Mm-hmm. And these were larger than life personalities, larger than life than even football players or baseball players. I mean, yeah. these flamboyant pro wrestling yeah. characters, these larger than life individuals, uh, people want to be close to them and, and get a picture with them, no matter how old the performer is, because you remember the glory days and oh my God, there's Greg the Hammer Valentine or there's Jimmy Hart or there's, yeah, yeah. you know, there's so many of them that, uh, and they're all larger than life. Yeah, you know? Part of their childhood too. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But, uh, and not to say these guys aren't, you know, incredibly famous. So the guys we see on WWE now, but, um, what do you think it was though about these guys back then that, uh, they were, you say, bigger than life. These characters were so defined, I think. Mm-hmm. But what do you think it was about those, you know, that period and the and the and the personalities that were involved in it? And it, it went beyond WWF. I mean, WCW had uh, these bigger than life characters too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's a good question. I um, the only thing I could think is of it is too, maybe like- too much. There's too much. Uh, you know, like with social media, there's there, there's just well, yeah, too it's much. everything. It's all of that now. There's way oversaturation and everything. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the social media, uh, the Twitters, the Facebook, the Instagram, all it's 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 diluted. Yeah. Uh, where um, it's certainly not like it was. I mean, back then, what did you have? You had the WWF, you had WCW, NWA, and you had other, some other organizations that were not, you know, big. You had uh, f- smaller ones. But, you know, those were when ratings were skyrocketing. Those were when you had, you know, the Monday Night Wars, you're having 9 million people a week watch wrestling, yeah. maybe more. Right. And now if you're hitting a million and a million and a half, I mean, that's kind of the average. Good, yeah, with the WWE, and that's yeah. crazy. So, I mean, it, it, it was exposed to millions and millions of more people back then. And now it's just kind of like, oh, there's wrestling, you know, and you have to be an ultra hardcore fan to stick with it. Because the viewership and it's the it's the attention span of people, you know, and it's and it's the it's the abundance of content that's out there uh, that's being always hit from you know and you at all angles you know the 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 things that come at you and the and the opportunities to watch this five minutes here three minutes here I'm gonna watch this video there's yeah. too much and you yeah. can't focus in on one thing that you really loved you know. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that may have uh, a lot to do with it, but I also think with the personalities, there's too much on them because uh, if you think about it's like your favorite movie stars, there's there's you know back then or whatever, you never imagined you would be able to have you know have him answer you back on Twitter, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, and, and now yeah. you've got this this interaction, and then we hear every detail of their lives every single day, and you're like, it's almost like okay, they are. Kind of like me, uh, they they wash their car and 
Yeah. So there isn't, you know, there's really, you talk about bigger than life. You would well, never imagine Hulk Hogan doing that back right. in the day. And, you know? and, and the thing is, it's not just a, it's not just a wrestling thing. I mean, right. I'm, I wouldn't, I've been in the country music business for a lot of years. And with the, the exposure that one now can get from tweeting or taking a picture of your meal, if you're an artist, <laughs> the artist today, I mean, that's why I left, I just left the music business because the general, the generation, the generational gap, and the youngsters that are coming in, the artists that are coming in, are no, nowhere like the artists that I was promoting and managing and working with. It's a whole different dynamic, and everyone is ultra sensitive today, uh, and uh, no one has a good attention span. <laughs> and I think a lot of people do it for the wrong reasons. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, it is too much. You're exposing your entire life to an audience. Now, no matter what you do, yeah. I'm waking up this morning. Oh, let me get you know, let me get my <laughs> yeah, Twitter feed going. You know, let me get yeah. a Facebook Live happening, and I'm feeding my dog. Yeah. I mean, so there's just uh, it's just too much. And, it, yeah. it, and I, I don't much. think they're doing them any favors, like you said. Like you wake up and and you know they don't have any things going on, so they they have to have the attention. So then they like, just give yeah. you stuff, and you're like. Okay, I didn't need to see you trimming your nails. You know, right. so, okay, right. I really don't need to know that side of you. And they're just like, no, I'm going to give you it all. No, no, you see what I'm saying? That's yeah. what creates. There's no mystique. The mystique. Yeah. No mystique. Right? We said at the same time, there's no mystique anymore. There's no uh, suspension of disbelief. That's gone. Yeah. And well, now, it, and now the fans look at the wrestling more of kind of an acrobatic show in a way, and a you know a work rate thing. And it's just, it's not like storylines. It's not like feuds. It's yeah. not like Iron Sheik against, uh, you know, there's not Sergeant Slaughter versus yeah. Pat Patterson. I mean, there's none of these built up feuds that used to, like, the fans be worked up into a frenzy. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't happen anymore. It's now it's just too scripted. And it's too, there's too many writers yeah. as well. Well, also, in, uh, uh, and it frightens me seeing some of the stuff that they do. I know these guys are incredibly yeah. skilled, but my yeah. God, you know, guys jumping off a balcony onto a yeah. chair in the middle of the yeah. ring, and you're like, Somebody's got to die first. Or what's what before? Uh, and then after you see it, you're like, God, that was awesome. Okay, right. what do you what are you doing next week? Are you going to be on fire next time? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I can't believe what they do huh? today. I mean, the bumps that they take and the people landing on their heads and right. you know falling off ladders and scaffolds and and uh, and you know the 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 light bulb tube smashing on the head and all of it. It's just. It's not like it was, man. It's just it's it's hard to watch. Yeah. So uh, during this time, people have uh, a lot of time in their hands, so they're they're watching a lot of stuff out there. But uh, one thing that's been really enjoyable, and I I really en- have enjoyed watching the series. I've interviewed uh, both the, the producers of the Dark Side Dark Side of the Ring, and the latest one that was out uh, with uh, Herb featuring Herb Abrams, uh, you know. Uh, Cowboy boots and cocaine, or cocaine and cowboy boots. Uh, you're all over that that yeah. uh, episode, and uh, I wanted to find out, like, why you and uh, and and give me some of the background of of that relationship that you had with with Abrams. Um, well, I mean, why me was simply that last year I had uh, when the show debuted, I I got together with Evan, uh, the producer, and I said, listen, I have an enormous amount of archives. Because I was in the discussions with the WWE at the time about my archives. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, if you ever need anything for any of these shows, I was knee deep into this era 
of uh, the scandals and, uh, you know, Herb Abrams and all of that. And then they came to him and I was like, well, we're doing shows for season two and one of them is going to be Herb Abrams show. What can you supply? Uh, and I gave them some content on some of the other shows till they licensed. But the Herb show in particular, because he launched the UWF at my first convention. Right. And there was a video of it. And yeah. he debuted yeah. on my radio show. He was on my radio show multiple times during that time period. And I had all the audio. Add pictures, add video, and they said, "Well, you knew him yeah, so well." That was, that was your video. A lot of that stuff that was behind oh, the yeah. scenes there. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. So, uh, so, so that's how I got involved. And then they asked me for to do an on-camera interview, and and I was happy to do that. And I think I came across pretty well. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so it was a, it was kind of an interesting thing for me. I was all over the episode, which surprised me that I had a lot of coverage, a lot of airtime. Uh, but uh, Herb was a nut. I mean, I remember, I remember Did him. Did you think that right off though? I mean, he comes, he's got Absolutely. this idea of the UWF, and what do you, what are you thinking? Like, what was the first you'd heard of it? Well, I mean, I heard of him through uh, George N. Macropolis, who was a yeah. big wrestling fan and Bruno San Martino's fan club president, and a dear friend of mine. She told me that a, a guy was starting a wrestling federation, a local guy from Queens, and and uh, Bruno was involved. So as soon as she said Bruno was involved, I said that's, that's credibility. credibility. Yeah. 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 So uh, I, I call, you know, we called and he brought him to. But I knew right away that he was a nut. <laughs> I mean, he was nuts, and he oh. would be like Jonathan, and you know, and he'd be he'd answer everything. Like if someone said something bad about him, he he would you know really get defensive. And and there was even a kid, Andrew Goldberger, the one who introduced me to Vince Russo, ironically. Mm. Uh, who uh, had a newsletter as a 14-year-old, and he wrote in his newsletter that Herb had bounced some checks, and Herb sued him, sued a 14-year-old kid. <laughs> and it was With crazy. all that insider it played, information. It played out on my show, and uh, and uh, Andrew uh, now is a multimillionaire who uh, developed some tech companies and sold them for an enormous amount of money. But uh, I, 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 I helped the producers uh, with the Herb ep- episode by introducing them to Sunny Beach. Yeah. I said, well, you should talk to this guy and you should talk to him. And and uh, and so they, they, they really uh, were, were um, very gracious to me and uh, they were very appreciative of all the help I gave them for that episode. And I hope yeah, to do and, more uh, with them in season three. Yeah, oh, I've, I've just loved watching. They, they're great producers too, and I, I certainly have appreciation for that because that was, you know, where I started. And oh yeah, uh, so I watch it really closely, and they, they've just done a phenomenal job. But uh, getting back to Abrams and that whole, you know, they you only got an hour to be able to find out all the story. But uh, when when this was happening, and he starts getting, I mean, he had these huge names. I don't know he, what he, kind of money he promised these guys, but. You know, we know in the business that if there's money to be had, uh, you can pretty much get anybody. Yes, you can. So when he's putting this together, are you going like, I can't believe he's 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 actually making this happen? And uh, did you see any length of like life to this thing that it would last? I um I got really discouraged once the show aired and he became the focal point of it. And that wasn't was the so, idea, like going in, he said, no, it's going to be. No, I thought he was going to push these guys like Steve Williams yeah, and yeah. all the great stars he was signing. And, you know, you have the Cactus Jacks who were just kind of developing their style and some of the youngsters and some of the veterans. And uh, But he um, he was somebody that uh, decided that he was going to be 
front and center and be the main character of the show. He did everything, the ring announcing, the announcing. He was he was all over the place, and he was it was coked up. I mean, uh, even then, I, like at the beginning, he was. Oh, I mean, my goodness! I mean, there were calls that he would call me like midnight or one in the morning, and Jonathan, and you hear him snorting on the other line, and I'm like, the guy's coked up, you know. Uh, so I helped him as much as I could, uh, especially when he launched in New York. I put together the fan fest for him and and sold uh, most of the tickets on through Pro Wrestling Spotlight. Uh, he set up a phone number for me, and I did ticket orders for him. So I was really heavily involved. But then, you know, checks did bounce, and he didn't, you know, things he adhered to. And I was hoping, <clears throat> I was hoping that, uh, and he was you know, alluding and promising that I'd have an on-camera role because I really wanted to do announcing, and I, I would have loved to have done ringside uh, interviews. Uh, and that stuff never happened. You know, yeah, he, so, already, he already had somebody. Himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, he had himself, and and then Craig the George came in and and did work for him, and and uh, but he, I was I never I never knew that I should have asked Craig what I had if I yeah would, Craig I was uh, Craig was yeah. one of the announcers, uh, yeah. especially when they had the uh, the stuff down in Florida. Craig the George from Sports Channel. I mean, he was yeah, right. and he was with WWF too. Yeah. Uh, so uh, so yeah, that was uh, you know that was a little disappointing. But as you as it continued, um, you knew there were going to be issues because I, I was flown out for the the blackjack brawl in vegas i mean he flew me out and i didn't do nothing i just he just flew me out just to fly me out and and i just sat there and watched this <laughs> this incredibly crazy show unfold before my eyes and it was kind of like there's 300 people here at the mgm grand and it's a party for herb it was like his own party it was crazy so despite the insanity though um do you think that something like that might have succeeded if he wasn't so, uh, you know, self-focused and having the, you know, the, the drug problems and everything? I mean, but the the idea of it, do you think? I it- think he could have could have went uh, if he didn't have the drug problems and if he did <laughs> have somebody that would really be focused on the storylines because he gave the wrestlers a lot of liberty in their finishes, and that's why there were no finishes. There were always DQs and countouts, and, uh, you know, there was really never any definitive one, two, three pinfalls most of the time, and he was just, he should have relied on the expertise uh, and the guidance of a Bruno Sammartino and some of the young minds like a Cactus Jack and some of the others that were involved with him, like Paul Ondorf and Steve Williams, and he had some really good minds there, but he didn't listen to them, he did what he wanted to do, and he had the demons that certainly altered his uh, thinking. And why were those? I mean, with the collection of stars, I mean, just the fact put those names up on a on a placard and you're going to draw people. Why were those gates so pathetic? It was promoting. I mean, I, I, it was the marketing. It was, I, you know, I'm a marketing guy. Yeah. You don't go into a town without marketing it the right way with with targeted. Television advertising, print advertising, you know, uh, personal appearances, getting on the news stations. It wasn't promoted like it was just like we're renting the building, we're putting it up, we're gonna just go off of what we're doing on our TV, which was not really watched. It didn't have big ratings. So if you're gonna do anything to succeed, I mean, it all comes down to how you're marketing your product and how many strategic alliances you could have to elevate the awareness of what you're doing. And he just didn't have that mindset to do that. Yeah. Did you always have a feeling it wasn't going to end well? That the, the, oh, yeah. it was going to phone call that was going to come to say uh, he, he wasn't going to end up in a nursing home. <laughs> I thought he'd be in jail. 
<laughs> I thought he'd end up in jail, uh, but I never thought he would go out the way he did. Yeah. I mean, that well, was kind yeah, of... Brian Blair that's... had the greatest line when he said, uh, you know, he, he went out doing what he loved. Yeah. <laughs> cocaine, cocaine and hookers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's why you can't get angry at the guy because he did yeah. have an endearing personality and he did screw people over and bounce checks. And uh, But he was this funny little guy that could always make you laugh. And that was like when you were with him, he had this magnetic personality. Because he was so up and hyper, he was never down. He was always optimistic. He was always funny. He was always telling jokes, and the boys really liked liked him. Yeah. Because personally, they liked him. Because I was just amazed that they, you know, at the end of the program when they're talking about his demise, and they say, you know, guys crying, and grown men and these wrestlers and mm-hmm. what what the heck? What was it about the guy? I mean, just if you said he's in, was endearing. Yeah, he so didn't pay him, which yeah, was the worst thing. Some people have an infectious personality yeah. that those want to be around, uh, and he was one of those guys that people like to be around. So what happened to him? What do you think? Because it didn't seem <laughs> there was really no well, answer. What really happened? Yeah, and I don't know. Was there a police report or something? Like they never really say right what happened. Right. I mean, I don't know what you know what the true true ending was other than what's been reported and there's different versions of it obviously but i think his personal demons the fact that he did fail uh and the fact that he had this major cocaine problem i mean that's going to affect your brain that's going to affect the way you think uh and and he couldn't let that go so that was his that was the thing that ultimately killed him was the the drugs were were even more powerful than his uh, his allure to pro wrestling. Yeah. Wow. Well, it was a fascinating story, and that that whole series is it just was. great. Uh, John, this has really been fun uh, talking with you, and uh, you know, catching up. We didn't realize how yeah. much we had to catch <laughs> up on. But uh, tell me about you know what's ahead for you. Uh, I know you got the, the podcast going on, yep. and uh, this is uh, you know something that's was due, I think. For you to, you know, come back and uh, be able to relate to all that you went through, and, and how's that going, and, and what's ahead for you? Well, I mean, uh, wrestling is certainly not the way I make my living right now. It's just kind of what you would call a side gig. Uh, I'm a media buyer for a uh, health and lifestyle brand out of Nashville, so I place all their media and negotiate their television deals. Uh, so that's what I'm doing right now. I've kind of segued out of the music business and uh, artist development, but uh, on the wrestling front. I have the podcast, which is pwspod.com, and I do that with Brian Last of the Arcadian Vanguard Network. Every week we go back 30 years to look at and listen to one of the radio shows that I did 30 years ago. Mm. And so, uh, ironically, I just uploaded uh, the next uh, one of the next episodes, which was the very first appearance on Pro Wrestling Spotlight by superstar Billy Graham, uh, March 25th, 1990, when he disclosed all of the troubles he had with his steroid abuse over the years. So that uh, so so that's what I do uh, on the podcasting side. I revive Pro Wrestling Spotlight in a very interesting platform now. On Saturday nights at six o'clock Eastern at Facebook on Facebook Live, and it's simply John Arezzi's Matt Memories, Facebook.com/slash John Arezzi's Matt Memories. And last week I had uh, Mick Foley and Evan and Jason from Darkside, and we did a Herb Abrams show. Oh wow! And yeah. uh, and yeah. then for the next one I have Sunny Beach and the Power Twins who also continue the Herb Abrams story. So I do that every week and. 
you know, that's not really, uh, you don't monetize that by any stretch of the imagination. But what I am building towards is what I'm going to be calling uh, the treasure chest of archives, which is mapmemories.com. And if, uh, you know, right now we have a sign-up page. So if you submit your email at mapmemories.com, uh, you'll sign up and then you get back as a return a, uh, a little documentary I did on the day I met Freddie Blassie. Uh-huh. And, uh, and it's yeah. film and audio and, and photographs and, and that's, uh, that's where the, I believe that the uh, money is going to be, uh, and that is going to be at the mapmemories.com, uh, portal. And I'm talking to other historians about bringing their content in to kind of turn it into a, uh, a museum of archives, uh, from different historians and pro wrestling. So I'm working on that. It's almost a full-time project now. And the book is coming out next April from ECW Press. Uh, cool. So uh, I think uh, next year is going to be the year where I go to all the conventions, if there are any, and uh, really begin to promote the book. And I think yeah. it's going to tear the curtain down in the country music business. As much as I tore the curtain down in pro wrestling, uh, the book is going to focus on some of the inner things that happen in Nashville every day and how you do business there, in, in addition to my uh, history in pro wrestling and in baseball. Uh-huh. Busy as ever. And, uh, folks, I'm sure you can go back, uh, go to the, the Facebook page. You can watch those, uh, those live shows back. And yeah. uh, you mentioned uh, Freddie Blassie, and he yes. is one of my all-time favorites. I had the uh, the privilege of of hanging with him a lot with the uh, when I was with the WWF, and he lived in Hartsdale. Yes. And uh, of course, I was in Stanford, and whenever they had some kind of event, they needed personalities from the WWF. From you know, we lived there, so we got sent. And uh, some of the I should write a book just on those memories with him because oh, yeah, they, yeah. they were insane. And if uh, I think if you spent any time with Freddie, you know it was always a blast. Yeah, I mean <laughs> Freddie was an interesting personality. Yeah. And I'll give you one quick little Matt memory that I, I'll never forget. Yeah. And it was the time I was in a cab uh, with Fred Blassie, Lou Albano, and oh, the Grand God. Wizard. And we were driving to we, – we went from the Edison Hotel uh, in New York City to the Garden for the show. And I just so happened to be in the cab with these three guys. And wouldn't you know it that we're driving down Times Square at a red light and all the, the – they roll the windows down and they're yelling at the fans. <laughs> and there's Blassie the Wizard and Albano. Oh and John Arezzi, I'm like, I'm just sitting there loving it because these guys are like Captain Lou's, like, hey, you and Freddie, you pencil neck geek and the wizard. I mean, they're all like, they're all in character yelling at fans in Times Square. And, and that was an incredible memory. And Freddie, I mean, what an amazing man. I mean, yeah. what a great guy and, and what a historic figure in the business. And all three of those guys were, but Blassie, man, Blassie was the best. Yeah, he was. Well, uh, I'll have to have you back. We'll do, we could do a whole show on Freddie. But, yeah. <laughs> but I really, when, when you get all this going with the, uh, you know, the memories and the, the Matt memories and the books out, uh, I hope you come back. Love to have I'd you. I'd love to anytime. This was a pleasure for me, Sean. Yeah. And, uh, and then now knowing that we, you and I were connected at Major That's League right. Baseball years ago. That's crazy. crazy. All right, John. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Sean. All right, there you have it. Uh, I hope you enjoyed uh, that talk I had with John Arezzi. And isn't that crazy that uh, we actually started uh, our careers together, in a sense, with uh, him working at Major League Baseball Productions for a very short time. But I'm telling you, you I would hear that name and I would say, that just sounds so familiar to me. Why do I know him? And as I uh, 
mentioned he was there briefly where I began my career, uh, I still remembered. And uh, it's, it's just great to, to, to finally have that confirmed because it did drive me crazy. Uh, re- really, though, uh, what a great conversation. And the fact that John was one of those people when you know starting that radio show because he was just a you know super fan he just loved talking about wrestling and and thinking he was going to start that radio show by you know just doing 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 it totally kayfabe you know where where it was just going to be about wrestling angles and having the guys on and them talking about it and uh, having these guys come on and, and and step out of character and also uh you know they it kind of became the audio dirt sheet um so Pretty amazing uh, how far we've come, and now they've turned into podcasts. And then also the wrestling conventions that uh, he ordered that what weekend of champions, and where it's gone from there. Uh, he was one of the originators, and uh, there really is uh, that that uh, video, and we uh, we should put that we'll put that link up to that. I'll have Casey do that so that you can take a look at it because it's really cool video of one of these first uh, conventions. And all of these stars were there. And Ric Flair getting into the ring, as I mentioned in the conversation, and uh, addressing this crowd that he was really kind of surprised at the, the reaction. And, you know, of course, he talked to fans before. But in that format, it was, a, it was a different world for these guys and opened up a whole new revenue stream for them where they could make some big bucks. I mean, uh, he said at the time they paid Flair five grand, which was a lot of money then. But I'm sure these... Guys that maybe weren't as big in names were, you know, you get a couple grand uh, and they could uh, do these all over the country. So it was, uh, you know, an innovator. And uh, he's traveled a very interesting road <laughs> from you know working in baseball and sales. I mean, all the different jobs he's had. Anyway, I uh, really want to thank John for coming on. And he's writing a book, and uh, watch out for that. But uh, also, he gets on uh, Facebook Live with his Matt memories. So check that out if you uh, get a chance. Uh, once again, uh, folks, keep uh, tuning in. We're going to continue to put up more and more content as we can and uh, do video interviews uh, when I can. So you actually get to see the interaction between uh, uh, whoever I'm talking to. And uh, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, in the meantime, please stay safe. Uh, take care of your family. Uh, do your self-distancing. Hopefully, we're going to get through all this soon. It seems as though we are starting to downtrend and that they are starting to open up our country again. We do need to do that desperately. And with that, the, the uh, business of professional wrestling is once again uh, charging through and, and uh, is as popular as ever and that everybody's making money because uh, that's what keeps these guys going. These are all independent contractors. And they need to work and they need to have these events and you need to support them. In the meantime, you know, they got merch. Uh, buy it if you can. Buy some t-shirts or their book or whatever. Uh, that is going to help them get through it. All right. So thanks for tuning in. Until next time, I'm Sean Mooney and I am out. Take care, everybody.